active duty service members, veterans, family members, thank you for your service. And thank you for listening to Return to Roots Mildevet Resource Podcast, where we document our shared experiences, stories, and transitioning and reintegrating from the military to the community. Hosted by two transitioning service members, myself, Chris Elder, and my partner in crime, Yonatan Hernandez. For more information, go to mill2vet.com. If you have little ears, ensure you listen to the content before you allow them to listen. And if you are in crisis and homelessness, suicide ideations, or incarceration, dial 211 Courage to Call for assistance. Now, stand by for the sound of freedom. Today's episode, we talk with Navy veteran Mark Vasquez, talk about his transition and reintegration. Enjoy the show. So I joined the Navy in 1991, August of 1991. Um, actually signed up in May of that year. Um, went to Astro World and then went to MEPS. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of people don't know Astral these days, man. They close, but and then I served for 20 years. I did my 20, and I retired in 2011 as a PR one. Oh no uh, shit! Yep. So I hear we are brothers. Uh, yeah. ALSS community. That's right. That's right, man. And uh, then what did you do right after that? Well, um, so while I was still in, I got recruited by this company that I still work for, KPA. Uh, LLC. And so in between the Navy and the, this career, I had five days off. So it was pretty much a seamless transition. But, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this is because, you know, there's a lot of anxiety for people that are getting out and a lot of worry. And I just want to say, man, if you prepare and you do what you're supposed to, uh, and, and your intent is to work after you retire, then the jobs will come looking for you and not necessarily vice versa. Um, but it's crazy, man, because I, it, just like you said, if you prepare and if you have mm-hmm. a plan and not just that, but if you have the actual, you put it in motion way ahead of you getting out, right? Yeah. I, what I've been seeing in the, so a little bit about me, right? Mm-hmm. I was in Japan. I was going to retire there. And then, unfortunately, um, I got hurt. Right? Oh. But I was at that point, I was already at 19, 18, 19 years in the Navy. So not too much to worry about because I'm going to retire anyways, right? Yeah. Uh, but then from there, I get sent to San Diego, California. to go start the med board, the limb and all that other stuff. And it's been an absolute nightmare. I'm talking about a nightmare for the whole process, right? Wow. Um, and so I've been here now in San Diego for a for a year and two months. Yeah, a year and a year and, and one month. I'm sorry um, to hear that, Yogi. I know um, the med board is is not the way you wanted. Probably pictured yourself, you know, transitioning. Absolutely not, bro. But yeah. I say that because. Honestly, being here in this limbo for a year mm-hmm. has allowed me to 
go through the turmoil that people get, just like we're saying, the anxiety and a lot of other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, think about it. Have time to do it. Process it. Do something about it, right? And yep. get that ball rolling into where I could legitimately have something positive or different after the fact to include the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And but that's that's the hardest part, right? Because I got thrown a big, massive curveball the last year in my in my career, right? And now I'm here, and I'm like, well, wow, like everything just yeah, right. I was just gonna say in Japan, I was gonna retire there, and now I'm I've never been in San Diego before, <laughs> never wanted to be in San Diego. Mm-hmm. I knew nobody here. It was just insane, man. So, anyways. I say all that because even though we might plan for all these things, mm-hmm. you still never know if you're going to get a last curveball and be like, surprise, that's not what you're going to oh, do, you know? I, so, I can't I can't imagine, man. Uh, compared to you, my career was pretty calm. Uh, um, but, and you know, I got some funny stories about that. Um, and I, I only share some of this because of what I did later to make up for it. But... Um, I came in the Navy and I actually wanted to be in the Marines. So back in those days, all the recruiters were right next to each other. And I walked right past the Navy office into the Marine Corps office. And I said, hey, I want to join. You know, Desert Storm has just been going on. And if you remember what that was like, uh, we went in and that thing was over in like a day and a half. So, but I was still itching to go over there and get some, you know. And, um, you know, Marines were excited until they saw my ASVAB score. <laughs> yeah. So I had scored a whopping 38 on my ASVAB. Oh, yeah. snap. Yeah. So, and, and, the, and, and, you know, it's the thing is that when they were administering it to us in high school, the people, the military people that were doing it were being pretty mean and, and forceful and, and, you know, do it this way. And I just, I was like, whatever, dude. And I Christmas tree most of it. And, you know, I did try through some of it, but then I just Christmas tree most of it. But I wish I hadn't because I had, at that time, I wasn't considering the military a career. But, yeah, when the Marines found out, they didn't call me back. You know, I kept calling and, and you know, I kept calling up there and they're like, oh, uh, we'll get back to you. <laughs> and uh, the Navy is the one that actually called me. Uh, Chief Krennic, uh, I still remember his name, uh, was my recruiter. And uh, Chief Krennic um, called me. He says, hey, man, we got a program where we can waive you. 50 is the minimum, but uh, we can waive you and you can get in. And then you can join the Navy and do whatever you want. So well, I didn't know that meant undesignated seamen. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to be a bosun's mate, man. Um, but I say all of that because... Um, you know, clearly later on, I, I went to college. I got subsequently collected three bachelor's degrees. And um, uh, I'll get into that in a second. Um, when, when I went overseas in my first ship, uh, I was on the USS LaSalle in Bahrain, homeported in Bahrain. It was miserably hot. You guys have been to the Gulf. It's miserably hot. Um, it's, it's unbelievably hot. And um, I was over there chipping paint. And, uh, you know, uh, doing what deck people do, needle gun expert, hanging off the side of the boat, you know, corrosion technician, 
um, all that stuff. So then I came back. One of the deals about being over there is you could uh, you could choose your rate when you got back that you qualified for. And still with a 38, I only qualified for like a handful, but I qualified for PR. And so I went to Memphis, Tennessee and went to PRA school and um, had a great time there. Uh, subsequently went to NAS Jacksonville, uh, stationed there for a while. And while I was there, I did my introduction to aviation. I did P3s, F-18s at Cecil Field. Uh, then we went to shore duty at NAS Jacksonville at AIMD. And that's when I decided to buckle down and go to school. Um, I didn't know what to do. I just went upstairs and talked to the career counselor. Um, she told me about tuition assistance. And then I went to the Navy campus and they told me uh, I could use my GI Bill because by that point I had already completed my first tour and re-enlisted. And uh, I went to school at ITT Tech was my first one. Uh, that is back in the mid nineties, that was a tough school. It was uh, advertised as a MIT education compressed into two years. And it was intense. It was four hours a day no breaks around the year. It was year round for two years straight. Uh, you had like a total of like three weeks off the entire year, but not all together. And uh, you learned everything from elect electronic theory to building circuit boards, programming, uh, all sorts of math, science, things like that. Um, two years later, I got my first degree. I wasn't happy with it, because it was a technical degree and not a whole lot of people were looking for technical degrees in that area. So I went back to school for two more years and I finished my Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering at UNF. And then because electronics uh, engineering is so related to that, I went for another year and finished that one, um, Electronics Engineering, a Bachelor of Science in that one. And um, so then I was ready to get out, you know, 1999, ready to get out. And uh, what I wanted to do was go work at NASA because we were so close to uh, Titusville, uh, the Cape Kennedy. And I just something about space has always, uh, you know, appealed to me. And um, applied there and, you know, did a bunch of applications, went through some interviews, didn't get picked up, uh, didn't call me within the time frame. And so I re-enlisted. Um, about 30 days to the day after I re-enlisted, they called me and offered me a job. And too late, I was already property of Uncle Sam for four more years. And so that took me into my, uh, uh, you know, next sea tour, which is where I guess I grew up in the Navy. I started growing up. I made uh, second class, made first class, uh, men ran into one of my first of many mentors that really shaped the course of my life. Uh, people like uh, Master Chief Gabe Cantu, who was just a first class back then. But uh, when I met him in Sicily, we were deployed to Siganella, Sicily. Uh, he was at HC4 and I was in neighboring hangar. He would walk over every day and go, Mark, what are you doing? You know, cause I would just be sitting there on, you know, around that where there's not much to do. And, and he would be like, come with me. And I was sitting back in my mind, I'm thinking, who is this guy? You know, he's a first class, I gotta do what he says. So I went with him and he would put me to work. Uh, we would be working on helicopter stuff. Uh, sometimes I would be washing his helicopters for him, you know, out on the wash rack. And I didn't even belong to that squadron. 
but uh, the whole point was uh you know you shouldn't be sitting down you shouldn't be you know not doing anything um and then at the same time uh, another ame one transferred into our unit his name was uh oh, what was his name mikey harding mikey harding uh, amy c harding uh, this guy was a hardcore uh amy and because prs and ames are combined together in the p3 community uh, he was also one of those finger waivers, like come with me types. And uh, before I knew it, I was spinning wrenches on a P3, changing valves, uh, you know, EDCs that were fixing the air conditioner on the P3. Um, I learned all sorts of things about it. And then I got interested in the engines and the mechs and what the mechs do. And long story short, I went to school, I got turn qualed, I learned how to turn engines on a P3, which I know the P3s aren't around anymore, but if you can imagine uh, operating four engines with giant propellers, that's a whole lot of uh, technical knowledge that goes into that. You not, you're not only flipping switches, you're monitoring like 30 gauges at the same time. Um, and that's a huge responsibility. You got four spinning propellers out there. So that's what I did as a PR. And I was the only PR at the time who was turnqualled on T-56s and uh, so for the audience, sorry to interrupt, but for the audience, uh, what a turn qual is, is mm -hmm. basically everything that the air crew does to the aircraft, the pilots but on the ground. And then what we're doing is we're testing the engines, checking them, off checking them, performing mm -hmm. uh, routine maintenance, and then sometimes just troubleshooting just to see what it could have possibly gone wrong in the air. Right. So go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we would run the engines up to test to try to duplicate gripes. And a lot of the uh, gripes is a problem with the airplane. Um, a lot of the problems with the airplanes, you couldn't duplicate. And then some you had to do an operational check after the repair. Um, sometimes you would pressurize the cabin. Uh, sometimes you would just run it up to a certain RPM and watch and make sure that the gauges did what it was supposed to and the oil pressure was where it was supposed to be. Um, and sometimes we would take it out to, to high power, which was across the runway. We had to get a duty pilot to taxi with us. And uh, I would sit out there maybe an hour just, you know, running it up to 1010, you know, the firewall, making sure that, you know, things were heating up and operating the, the way they were supposed to. Uh, but with that is a huge amount of responsibility and knowledge and studying. Um, it was more challenging than just about any warfare pin that I ever uh, went for. Uh, because at the end, there was a board of flight engineers and pilots who drilled me pretty hard. And I had to go to simulator and I, I burned a lot of engines in the simulator, <laughs> you know, because they were throwing curveballs at me. But that was exciting. Uh, those two guys, Master Chief Cantu and uh, Amy C. Harding, uh, put me on the path to saying, you don't just have to be a PR. You can sit in your shop all you want, or you can do stuff like this and make a difference and you know, gain a lot of uh, experience. Um, and then I went to Japan for shore duty. That's where I met ADC Nucho. Well, he was an 81 back then. Um, I thought I was something, you know, I was a PR striking out of my rate. I, I knew T-56, I knew the turboprops, and uh, I knew electronics. 
because that's I had degrees in electrical and electronics. Um, this guy, if you ever met him, he, he kind of talks like that turtle from Finding Nemo. <laughs> that's that that is Nooch. And you Nooch would swear is that turtle. <laughs> and you would swear that this guy's been, you know, like hitting the doobie, but that dude is sharp. And, and but it's just my first impression of him was man you need to go take a piss test you know <laughs> just because the way he talks and the way he carried himself but when he pulled out his pqs binder he was qualified in every single work center at aimd i kid you not that was an eye-opener i was like this guy's sharp and so he showed me a thing or two about what it means to get out uh, that was my introduction to production control or maintenance control, which is where, you know, you you operate the entire facility. Um, you're in charge of all the work centers and what they do. So then I went to Lamore and that's where I died in, in my uh, <laughs> in my naval career. I did uh, Hornets and I did uh, shore duty. Uh, the tail end of my shore duty was at VFA 122, which was the RAG. Ooh, ooh. Training command, yeah. That's why my hairline is back here now, because <laughs> uh, that's not shore duty, man. It's, it's you're not hanging out in the jet exhaust. That's what you were doing. That's why I got moved up. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Uh, oh my gosh, if you've ever been to Lemoore, that's quite an experience. Actually, I actually liked it. Um, I went up to the sequoias. You know, we go sh to the beach. We go up to the mountains. We went to Yosemite Park. Did all that good stuff. But um, my shore duty. And then in uh, my one year out, I was still trying to make chief. I was still doing all the wonderful things in, in QA and maintenance control, all the things you're supposed to do. And um, it just didn't happen for me. So uh, I got pulled aside and asked to make room for somebody else. And, and of course, it wasn't really asked. I, I went to go to the safety department. I became the safety PO for my last year in VFA 122. And I went upstairs and worked with a safety officer where I wrote the first fall protection program for the Navy and um, did confined space, confined space entry, did some changes to that program and uh, got some uh, introduction into the safety field, uh, which is where I am now. It kind of turned it into a career and I'm now a professional risk management consultant or safety consultant. So I, I kind of want to stop you there. I want to paint a picture to everybody that is listening to this. So a lot of people that are in the aviation community for the Navy side probably doesn't understand what happened to Mark. All right. So Mark was put into the safety department and I'm not saying that this happens all the time, but there's a certain stigma that's put on to the person that gets put into the safety department not the correct stigma in my opinion and i never thank god um ever viewed it this way but yeah. typically people did not put um people in there that were going to get a lot of energy yeah towards so usually they were put there to go out the pasture essentially yeah. so it, it's it, it's mark is when when you went there you probably had that whole entire cloud over you but you just told me that 
you just said, screw that. I'm actually going to make this be a great opportunity. And you started doing the fall protection, which mm -hmm. over at VFA, it was at VFA 122 when that happened. Yes. So, and implementing something like that and in a squadron, a, a fighter attack rag squadron, which, which means that they are essentially a puppy mill of all the air wings. Right. Where they send all their new pilots to get tested out after they get from flight school, flying the T-45s. They come to see if they can pass and be a fighter pilot. That's essentially what VFA 122 is. So just imagine this. They got they got somewhere around 100 jets or so, if uh, and they have a lot of people coming in there filtering in and out and you're the safety there that's that's a big responsibility yes that's a big responsibility you actually have a huge safety department there or there should be yeah so i'll talk on that a little bit if you'd like um so the safety department like you said was huge we had 110 at the time 2010 2011 we had 110 jets uh and at any given time we were lucky to have 35 in an up status every single hangar bay her majesty hangar bay queen was there uh we we robbed parts and provided the fleet with everything they needed um and and we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 1100 uh sailors and civilians and student pilots uh, it's a teaching command for pilots like you said pilots in rios um the the thing i learned about that is it's you can work yourself to death. We work nonstop, uh, sometimes 12 on 12 off, uh, sometimes three shifts, but we, that command is always operating. Um, I went to night shift, I went to day shift, I, I worked around the clock, uh, went on detachment to Key West, which I know sounds like fun, but when you're going there every other month and you're supposed to be on shore duty, preparing to retire, it, it's kind of a lot. But uh, yeah, constantly walking around, being that guy, say, put on your cranial, uh, don't get too close to that edge, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, checking all the fire extinguishers, fire suppression systems, the halon, uh, eye wash stations, exits, stairs, trip hazards, nonstop, you know, up and down the hangar, uh, working your tail off. But like you said, a safety PO is a stigma. It's It's one of those where you put people out to who, who are not really going anywhere and just kind of finish out your tour, or you put new people in there to kind of familiarize yourself with the systems or the platform. Uh, Hornets is a prime example of where they like to put people who have never worked in F-18s, uh, they like to put them in safety departments so that they kind of get an introduction to the flight deck, but you're not really working under a jet or you're not in dangerous per se and you're just kind of get, getting familiar with it there's a stigma because it's that's not typically where you're going to really advance and stand out you know it's really hard to make uh something worthwhile out of the safety department i might i might throw a plug out there you know it's a stigma maybe not necessarily for the rag squadrons as much as the smaller commands that have like 10 jets or five jets typically those safeties not always 
because there's the ones that like go, you know what, I'm going to go full on this. And they may be a full systems QAR and they got an opportunity to go into safety. So, which in my opinion is what you want in safety, a full systems yes, so quality assurance representative. Thanks to safety, I actually had some experience in the Navy that trans translated to an outside skill. Um, you think about it, and Yogi may have a similar uh, background. There's not a whole lot of call for people who can rig and pack parachutes on the outside, you know, or ejection seats. You know, the Batmobile, there's only one of those, and there's a bunch of Yogis retiring. So <laughs> the, the ejection seats, ALSS, that sort of thing is very specified field. You can um, operate a sewing machine somewhere, I guess, if you want, but... <laughs> That's not really for me. I don't know. Right. You guys do look like beautiful seamstresses to me. Bitch, <laughs> bitch. So, so, you know, Mark, it's funny. You were there on detachments mm -hmm. when I was there. Uh, really? I was stationed in Key West uh, from 9 to 12. Um, and I was there. And I was the guy in charge of making sure that the the watch codes were done and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. I was working on my safe flight and other stuff. It was it, it was cool and crossing paths and not not entirely knowing but knowing you know kind of thing. It's 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 fun, and it the was. navy really is that small. It is. That's amazing, and I'm grateful for Key West because I've gone on vacation there since then, and it's it's great going on vacation there. It's great you know, not staying in the barracks. <laughs> you are <know? laughs> looking at that fly Navy uh, uh, establishment over there going, I'm glad I don't have to stay in the yeah. cockroach motel. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, uh, but you know, some, I have stayed there since too, just, uh, just to save money sometimes and have more money to spend fishing or chartering a boat or something, you know? Um, but yeah, that's the, the wonderful thing about the Navy is all the places you get to go and all the things you get to do. But the, the reason I wanted to talk about safety was because safety is what allowed me to have experience in what I do now for a living, which is uh, facilities hire me to come in and basically write safety programs like emergency response, hazard communication, all the NAVOSH stuff that, you know, a lot of people used to just kind of pencil whip, so to speak. You know, what do you evacuate to? Uh, what are your emergency exits? How do you operate a fire extinguisher? You know, that sort of thing. Lots of basic things. And so that's what I get hired to do, amongst other things. Um, I wanted to let people know that if you find yourself going to the safety department to learn, really learn about the programs, and because all of that directly translate to OSHA standards or EPA standards. Um, the CFR 29s that they call them, or the CFR 40s. Um, all of those are federal guidelines or directives actually on how to work safely. There's tons of programs that fall under that. And then for the EPA side of it is how to handle hazardous waste primarily and how to contain all of your chemicals safely. Uh, things like writing spill plans, uh, things like properly managing your uh, petroleum products, um, you know, 
you ever heard of somebody like dumping a bucket of oil into the storm drain, you know, how big those fines are. You know, people hire me to come in and do that, that sort of training so that the facility owners and, and the business owners don't get big fines for all of that stuff. So speaking on that, how do you say, or is there a big difference between the aviation community that we practice all the QA protocols, safety, mm -hmm. and would you say it would also apply to the ships and the submarines and all the other platforms that the Navy carries? Um, roughly. So NAVOSH and OSHA standards are very close. A good example I'll give you is fall protection. Uh, Fall protection, when I was in the Navy, used to have a six-foot minimum uh, distance that you could fall before you would have to implement fall protection. Uh, on the civilian sector, it's four feet. You know, human beings are human beings. We're, we're in hazardous environment, and we can get injured doing the exact same things around the world. When you step outside of the United States shores, you have ISO, the International Safety Organization, which is like OSHA. And a lot of uh, European countries use ISO standards, which are very similar to OSHA standards. So uh, whether you're offshore or you're in the Navy or you're in the Marine Corps uh, and you have some form of uh, you know, military safety standard, it's all going to closely relate to the civilian, civilian safety standards. I'll tell you another collateral duty that uh, people kind of get put into but don't really like is uh, corrosion, corrosion control. You know, nobody likes to be out there in a hot hangar base, sanding jets and painting and doing stuff like that. But let me tell you, um, you know, the respirator fit testing and all that stuff. Um, if you had any idea how much a painter makes in a body shop, you would jump on that opportunity in a heartbeat. Um, in a town like Houston, there's a shortage of painters, experienced painters. Uh, those guys are making, walking in the door upwards of $85 an hour, guaranteed. Plus there's commission on how much vehicles you paint or how much you produce. Um, and that's just a, an example. If you go to places like some of my district is down in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, it's kind of an island because there's not other towns or cities nearby uh, or major towns. I think the closest one is San Antonio, about two and a half hours away. And if you're a painter in Corpus Christi, you're going to make big bucks. You can, you, if you don't like where you're working, you can call another body shop and say, hey, can I come work for you? And before you finish your sentence, they're going to be like, yes, bring your toolbox, bring your paint guns, let's go to work. And you have a pretty much guaranteed job there. So things like corrosion control, your introduction into paints and uh, respiratory programs and things like that, as all relative experience that can easily transfer to the outside world, that will get you some pretty good employment if that's what you want to do. Yeah, those uh, those schools and all that experience out there, there's so many opportunities and, and not just in Corpus Christi, but also working in like the sound over here mm -hmm. up where I'm at. There's there's a lot of a lot of jobs that's looking for painters and stuff like that. And yep. I, I was at the uh, Camp Pendleton job fair that they had, and they literally had a, a paint booth guy. I was just sitting there saying, hey, like, you want to make a lot of money? 
like compete compete vehicles they they need people that are actually going to do that kind of work there's so much um opportunity out there just like the, everybody focuses on the amp mm -hmm. aspect which that's if you get your amp i if you are in the military right now and you're in aviation maintenance you need to get your amp mm -hmm. You need to do that but if you don't have that and you have that paint and final finish school then you're making you're making a good good amount of money yeah so i am not a amp but it's my understanding that once you leave the military you can't just go work on airplanes no matter if you did that job for 20 plus years you have to have your amp certification or your license airframes and power plants uh, no, there's a lot of Navy jobs that are like that. Even corpsmen, mm -hmm. uh, the people who administer medications, uh, who's in there doing our dental stuff. Yeah, these guys—they're not actually certified in the real world to do the things they do, and that's 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 one thing that I wish if I had power for the day I could change because you want to create ability for people to successfully transition yep. certify them and what they're actually able to do in the military yes so but i think part of part of the problem is i mean the department of whatever they came up with the what the the junior uh apprenticeships the journeyman's certifications so that i try to help mm -hmm. this yes maps that's the department it, of labor right but it, it didn't really translate whenever for us actually getting out just like mark mentioned earlier as an ame great i have i currently hold four five um us map certifications but they mm -hmm. mean nothing they just mean that i have documented experience yeah one of my us maps is computer operator what the hell am i going to use for computer operator like seriously like that is actually like legitimately it's the name of it and then mm -hmm. that just sounds silly but it's like well i had to break down computers i had to break down printers but it doesn't say that it's, mm -hmm. it just says computer operator you, you know what i mean what, what's the next one typewriter uh how not to how to not get a paper cut successfully operated oh my gosh that's right i forgot your background was log books and records az that's yeah that's yogi funny. yogi got me my coffee though <laughs> i like it now we got to take care of our AZs, man. Um, no, what I was going to say was uh, even with um, a technical degree and two bachelor's degrees, I was still very worried about getting out of the Navy. You know, I got to Lemoore, I bought my house in 2006. And then if you guys remember what happened in 2007 with the housing market, it crashed, like crash and burn, baby. Uh, my house that I bought in Hanford, California, uh, bought it at a certain dollar amount was worth about half of that by the time it was all said and done when the dust settled and it never recovered uh, and I still had that mortgage payment to make and I was about to retire in a year so I walked my butt back into Navy campus and I said what else can I do uh, they took my transcripts uh, and even my training jacket and said okay these colleges will give you these degrees if you do this much time. And so eight more months, I had a bachelor of science in business administration 
with a focus on management uh, with just eight more months. And so Navy Campus did that for me. Um, and, and those people are, I gotta tell you, they're there to help. If, if you're concerned about, you know, I'm not smart enough for college. I don't know what to do. I'm, you know, apprehensive about it. Um, dude, if I can do it, you can do it. It all depends on what you feel like you have to do and what you're gonna motivate yourself to do. Because I'm telling you, a monkey can do calculus. Uh, this monkey did calculus, up to calculus four. And um, you, you can, you, you really can do it. You just got to get off your chair, walk into the Navy campus, and they'll take it from there. Like it, like every great person tells you, the, the, the key to doing something is to start doing something. Just start. If you walk into that Navy campus, they're going to take care of you. And, you know, I'm promoting college degrees a lot here, I realize that. Um, and that's not the only road. Uh, I have this theory that some people are gonna succeed no matter what. And some people are gonna become entrepreneurs after the Navy. Uh, some people are gonna go on to get certifications, like maybe go to a community college to learn how to weld, uh, to learn how to be an x-ray technician and things like that. Um, there are also uh, certifications that you can get that can lead to pretty meaningful careers so but just my personal experience uh, I don't know why I was so stuck on college um, well number one I had the GI Bill and the Navy pay for it um, but it, my experience towards the last part I went through TAPS class it was called TAPS transition assistant program I think it's what it was called back then and uh, it was about a week long and I got to tell you they did almost nothing to help me prepare to get out. And, and I know that <laughs> so many veterans from that time will tell you the same thing. The one thing that I did get from it was I learned that I could get a disability rating and I learned that I could uh, start applying for disability. And so I started that process six months out and subsequently did get a, by the time I was retired, I had a 70% disability just based on things here and there that you know, you don't get too injured sitting inside a pair loft and, you know, not doing a lot. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I did have some things that, that did go wrong with me and I did have some injuries that needed to be documented. Um, and then the funny thing was a lot of people may remember monster.com. It was a place where you could put your resume. Um, about three months out from retiring, I think it was around February timeframe. I put my resume on monster.com and uh, about April, uh, this company called. And about that time, other companies were calling. Um, and one of the things I also learned was that when you're out there searching for jobs and using these filters, um, a lot of jobs that you may be looking for require bachelor's degrees. That's a sad fact but the door's not even open if you don't have a degree. And I think that's a horrible, not the best way to do business because you filter out a lot of good people, but that's, that's what you're looking at if you go out into the world and you start filtering and looking for jobs in different job sites and recruiting websites. If you don't have a bachelor's degree or some kind of college or X amount of years of relevant experience, then you know these computer programs are not even going to look at your resume. Right. 
the company called. I went through a six-step process to get hired. Uh, got hired in June. I was still active duty. Traveling from Lamore to San to Los Angeles to do uh, interviews and take it take exams. Uh, I got hired. Uh, my start day was July the fifth, uh, and I got out of the Navy five days prior to that. End of June was my uh, EOS. Um, I was on terminal leave until August. And from the time I was 19 years old and signed up to join, um, never had a day off. I had five days off in between that. And that was basically it. I really enjoy this career. Um, basically went from E6 pay to O5 pay overnight. It's, uh, it's, it's a really good company to work for. You can make more if you're motivated. If you like sell, you can sell. Um, but I just like helping businesses. I like helping people. Uh, I really get enjoyment out of people who are in trouble, people who've had injuries or fatalities on their works, work sites. And I get to go in and, and help them, walk them through the processes of how to report that, uh, minimize lawsuits, and also help uh, help it prevent it from happening again. What's the, what's the name of the company that you're with now? It's called KPA LLC, uh, Kilo Papa Alpha, KPA LLC. So it used to stand for Kip Prowl and Associates and um, it started by a retired Lieutenant Commander in 1986. And since then it has grown uh, to a nationwide company. When I joined in 2011, we had about 300 engineers nationwide. Now we're quadruple that, maybe more. We have different lines of businesses. We're in safety, we're in HR. We also do uh, sales and finance for uh, for car, car uh, what do they call them? Auto dealers. Uh, so when you walk into the showroom, you know all that stack of paperwork that you have to sign when you're buying a car. Uh, there's a process, there's a lot of legal uh, things that have to be done in a certain way, down to the way that you advertise a car uh, that if you don't do it correctly, you can get fined a lot of money. So we help dealerships uh, do all that correctly. Well, three different lines of business within KPA. You would never think that having to sell a car requires that kind of scrutiny and decisiveness. That is fascinating. That is it is. Um, I learned that if you have $10,000 in cash and you hand it over as a down payment, they have to fill out a special form and call Uncle Sam and say, hey, this guy's got this much cash and you can be investigated. It's a big red flag. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what I do. Uh, I'm familiar with it because I work alongside a lot of those uh, consultants. But uh, yeah, it's in this job. I like it because it, it kind of keeps you on your toes. You get to help a lot of people and you got to keep learning. Uh, we talked about certifications a while ago. I can tell you that you and I both know what two plus two equals, right? Equals four. If you're going to put that on a piece of paper, that means something like a spill plan. Uh, you have to have a certification in order to sign that. Kind of like signing for CDI, you know, or signing for QAR. Sign in safer flight. Um, you have to be a, a licensed engineer to, to sign something like that. Or you have to have a certified safety pro 
uh, certification to, to sign or do certain processes. Um, even if the math is as simple as two plus two, um, when it comes to people's safety or liability, you have to have a certification. You can't just be Joe Schmo off, you know, straight out of the, the naval base and say, hey, I'll do it. It doesn't work that way. So, like, walk me through it, man. So you said that you went from the Navy to straight into a job, like you had a job like that? Yes. It was uh, like a six-interview process, but I was still active duty when they called me. And uh, I had put my duty phone number as a phone number there. <laughs> so when I answered it, I was like, PR1 Vasquez, BFA 22 safety. How can I help you, sir or ma'am? You know, <laughs> that whole spill that we do. Um, and they were like, oh, this is a recruiter for KPA. And she's just chill, civilian talk, you know, looking for Mr. Mark Vasquez. Nobody called me Mr. Mark Vasquez back in those days, you know. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how that started. Uh, she kind of went through my resume and she was just a recruiter. Uh, my next phone call was from the guys uh, who were in charge, the managers in charge of the Los Angeles office, a guy named Joey Moctezuma and Brian Davies. Uh, those guys called me and they started asking technical questions like, what is fall protection? What is a fire extinguisher? Um, what is a MSDS? Even though MSDSs don't exist anymore, back then they did. Uh, can you tell me three things you find in MSDS? And I was able to answer all those things because I was in safety. Um, eye wash stations. How long are you supposed to flush your eyes for an eye wash station? 15 minutes. You know, I just rattled that stuff off. I, you know, that's just kind of like the introduction. Um, and then after that, 30 minutes of that, I got called and or they made an appointment to come do an in-person interview. And I was scared, man. <laughs> you know, I've never done an, I've done boards for the military but I've never done an interview, uh, you know? So the interview was two weeks away. I went to the next town over where they had a men's warehouse and bought a suit. You know, you're gonna like the way you feel, I guarantee it. it I did. So <laughs> I went across, you know, got my suit and I got, they had like a buy one, get one free at the time. So I got two for the price of one. They custom tailored it. Um, went across the street to the mall to the Macy's I got a nice watch like a citizen and I had a lot spent a lot of money that I didn't have you know because I was transitioning getting ready to get out I was trying to save um, and so I did went and did my interview knocked it out of the park man um, another thing I get to do with this job is presenting I may be talking to a boardroom of uh, a board of investors I may be talking to facility owners or I may be talking to hundreds of people doing a emergency response training. So that's what that interview was about. I walked in the door and they had a projector with a laptop and they said, I want you to do an emergency response brief. And so I did it just the same way that I had been doing it with VFA 122. And I gotta tell you, public speaking is hard. I kind of forgot about this, but we had a safety stand down in VFA 122 right after, like a couple of months after I went up there and I had to present. And 122, like I said, has 1,100 people. 
civilians and active duty, 1,100 people. And when I got up on stage, I froze. I, I'm talking about physical tingling, uh, butterflies. I, I was kind of trying to be cool and walking up there. And when I looked around and looked at the crowd and you got thousands of eyeballs looking at you, including your skipper, XO, CMC, I was like, shit, <laughs> you know, it was uh, a harrowing experience to say the least. And, um, but, you know, I took a deep breath and, and, and I just started going and I know I said I was trembling through the first couple of slides, but uh, as I kind of went on, I was, by the end of it, 15 minutes later, I was good. And so after doing that, after leading safety meetings with all the LPOs and some of the branch chiefs and, and you know, standing in a room full of like 30, 40 people um, every month, it just kind of became second nature. And so by the time I went there and I, and I was asked to present on emergency response, I knew emergency response, like the back of my hand. And so it's a NAVOSH program. I don't remember what they call it in the NAVOSH, but uh, emergency response deals with fires, evacuations, facility, uh, spill containment, uh, inclement weather, um, oh, and chemical overexposure. So those are things that I just knew at the time. And when they asked me to present, I just went through the slides and, and I was able to add stories and talk about it. And I looked really comfortable doing it and just in front of those two people. And so the next call after that was uh, one of the directors in the company. And it was just a formality. And he just likes to call and um, he's a nationwide director for our our department, and uh, Wayne Curtis, and he called me and just we just talked for 30 minutes about what I did in the Navy, and it's easy to do that when you've spent 20 years in the Navy. Um, and then I got an offer letter, and I accepted. Um, like I said, my pay went from from this to this overnight. It was pretty awesome feeling. And, and what I would want that for every veteran who's getting out of the military, if that's your goal. Uh, some people want to do nonprofits. Some people want to just get out there and be volunteers. Uh, but whatever your goals are, it's nice to have that option to be able to support your family and, and have a good living if that's, if that's your goal. So what programs did you use if any, after the military, that for veteran resources? Um, the local VSO more than anything, um, because I moved away from a military base. Um, I lived in Hanford for about two years following, uh, worked from home. I saw clients in Bakersfield to Modesto up and down the 99. Um, but then I got a, an opportunity to promote and I moved to Texas, back home here in Houston. And um, the VSO is to me uh, gold. Uh, if you have, you know, the, the things with the VA change so frequently, the programs that you may not know about are out there. And no matter how much research you may do on your own, you're gonna miss something. And so the, the local veteran services offices are my go-to for when I have any questions. Um, as far as uh, programs that I've benefited from, uh, just any VA-related program, um, 
you know, going down to the VA hospital and, and signing up and having your ID card, you know, that's a big plus. Um, do you know what it costs to uh, get a CT scan if you don't have insurance out in town? Or if you have to do a copay, uh, it can charge, it can cost upwards of $1,000. Um, if you need surgery, uh, $1,600 to $2,000 copay. That's if you don't have TRICARE Prime, if you have just TRICARE Standard. Um, yeah, that's a lot of money. If you go down to the VA and it doesn't cost you a dime. Uh, you have to get on the schedule and you have to do it. You know, Hopefully it's not something that you need right away. But um, yeah, all of those little minor outpatient screenings and things that, that you'll need as you get older, um, they don't cost me anything because I go to the VA sometimes. You know, um, you mentioned towards the beginning of this mm -hmm. that when you were in TAPS, it did not give you what you expected for it. And I kind of want to recircle back to that statement because I think a lot of people think TAPS is going to be the end all be all of what mm -hmm. you need to transition out. And the problem is, is that's not what TAPS is designed to do, right? It's designed to feed you information and that's about it. Get the little checkbox, like, okay, did we provide you the information? Cool. Did they understand it? That's not part of it. That's not on here. I provided yeah. it to you. It doesn't mean you understand. And I know some of these, um, these TAPS classes or TRSs, um, they do their best to give you a personalized transition class. But the problem is, is that they're only allotted so much time. Yes. And you're in there. Uh, right now it is three days. You're in there from morning till afternoon. And the old TAPS class where you used to dress up one of the days and you do an interview class, like that, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, we didn't do that either in 2011. Uh, it's interesting. Because I remember I, I attended in 2009. We did that. Oh, did you? Wow. Yep. Yep. We we did that. And then the most recent one I took, they don't do that for the TAPS class, but you can attend these additional classes. And going through, there's a like the command I was at was a large command in my her counselor was like, you are the only person that actually wants to attend these. Not as a, um, not just saying that I'm painting a butt, but they're saying like, it, it's kind of scary that people aren't taking advantage of these additional classes and additional resources out there. Yeah. And uh, there's so many resources. I bet you if you would have known some of them, you probably would have checked it out, but Man, it sounds like you had a smooth, smooth uh, transition, which is which is awesome. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't pray for anything better. Um, yeah. It really was just kind of landed in my lap. And the thing is, when you have uh, the experience, you're a veteran and you have education and certifications, the jobs literally come looking for you. Um, I've had multiple job offers just show up in my inbox or offers to come interview. And, and that's a good feeling. Uh, 
people like Raytheon or uh, Slumber J, the oil and gas companies here, Exxon Mobil, uh, BP, uh, and there was another one, I can't remember, a major corporation, Halliburton, Halliburton. Uh, we've all heard those names, we're kind of familiar with those com companies. Uh, it's nice to, when the recruiters reach out and say, hey, we want you to come interview for this position. I uh, kind of like where I'm at, but what I want veterans to know is you can work your way from a 38 ASVAB to, you know, two engineering degrees, a bachelor's in business administration, and some safety certifications, and and you can become very, uh, uh, you know, desired in the workplace. A 38 ASVAB, though, I don't know if I'm ever going to live that down. <laughs> I think it makes that, you feel any better. You're not the lowest uh, no that's out there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm surprised the Marine didn't hold a mirror up to my nose to see if I was breathing. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, once I joined the military and I was looking at what you can do, uh, but the scores that are required, man, it's not a whole lot. Nothing technical for sure. Like we don't want you touching rockets and missiles and, and computers. We don't want you touching none of that stuff. Yet they still trusted you to pack shoots. Yes. I, I don't get it, but, you know, in ALSS, it's um, it, it's step-by-step -step monkey see, monkey do. And, and third monkey checks what you're doing. So it's, it's not like you can really, the, the percentage to ability to mess something up is very low. It's when the senior people skip steps that things go wrong. Like you guys have heard of QDRs, quality deficiency reports. These messages that go out and you have to down the jet because you have to check a parachute or a seat pan, you know. Armchair CDIs. You know, speaking of it, it's usually PR stuff. It, it is. is. It is. And it's usually from AIMD or from somewhere else like that because they are doing it. And for every, for our audience who doesn't know what a CDI is, it's a collateral duty inspector. That is a very, very serious um, job because what you're doing is you're one supposed to be you're supposed to be a master of your maintenance expertise. You're also supposed to know the publications. And essentially, you're double stamping the single stamp. Yes. <laughs> it's, I tie a knot and, and I'm ready for my CDI step. And, and then that guy comes over here and says, okay, that knot is good. Proceed. To step. Yeah. And then you'll have the, uh, the triple stamper, which is your uh, CDQAR or your, uh, which is your, a collateral duty quality assurance representative and then you'll have your quality assurance representative so you could have a you could have a double stamp you could have a triple stamp or you could have a quadruple stamp there's a lot of stamps involved in here and before stamps it used to be crimps because you used to have a professional uh tool uh that you would seal your name to it saying i did that i remember and that or for the life of whatever the equipment that was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. The lead, the lead seals with the uh, crimps. I remember those. 
man, that's been a while ago. You're old school. <laughs> I'm experienced. <laughs> we'll have one of these pretty soon. <laughs> man. Once I retire, I'll let it grow out. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that 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 was my story, man. And um, yeah, stay in school. Let the Navy pay for it. Get your degrees. Uh, be prepared when you get out. You know, it's it's not a nice world out here as far as employment goes, and the economy uh, dictates a lot. Inflation is unrelenting. Uh, not to make, not to try and scare anyone, but um, you know, if you're looking at getting out, um, be prepared. Don't just get out and say, "Hey, hire me." That that may not happen. But Mark, I'm just gonna go to school after this. That's my <laughs> plan. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, the 9-11, so I had the Montgomery GI Bill. Uh, I think the 9-11 GI Bill would take care of you a little bit better uh, while you're going through school. You might be able to, you know, live a little comfortably and, and go to school afterwards. I'm not really sure what the dollar figures are there, but the Montgomery GI Bill would not have allowed that. And uh, I actually used my Montgomery GI Bill while I was on active duty um, at UNF, University of North Florida. And um, I burned through it in about three, three and a half years. So, but, you know, it's well worth it. I, I got my education and uh, I had no, no problem transitioning, um, thankfully. So what's some good sea stories, man? I, I can't let you go unless you tell me some great sea stories. I know you got, got them. You got 20 years of experience. You know, you might be a um, seamstress, but I'm sure you got some great stories. You know, my best times when, when I was part of a small detachment, we had what we call the A-team. And because Master Chief Cantu and Amy Chief Harding had kicked me in the rear and made me uh, get out of the shop and learn stuff, I became part of the A-team. We would go to Azores. Um, we would go to Sicily. We went to El Salvador. Uh, Panama, Puerto Rico, and, and it's just a small group of us who were cross-trained to do other things. And um, I'll never forget the most, the, one of the most challenging things I ever did was what they call a man on a stand turn. Are you guys familiar with that? Uh, imagine a giant spinning propeller and, and a guy standing right behind it doing engine checks. Um, so this is my best friend at the time, Hector Medina, 81, he's now a retired chief out of Norfolk or senior chief. Um, he was the man on the stand. He's my good friend and I'm turning the engine and I'm feathering the prop, watching the gauges so that, you know, that doesn't suck him in or blow him backwards. And I'm sitting here just tweaking and sweating and, and looking. And uh, cause this thing's turning at a thousand miles an hour. And, and he's standing not two feet from it, you know, doing engine checks. Uh, that was probably one of my most uh, scary situations that I can remember in the Navy. And most exciting, you know. The things are really matter. Can you explain what feathering? Oh, is? yes. Yes, I'm sorry. Feathering. Feathering is the position of the propeller, what they call pitch. So in, in a T-56 prop engine and the E-2 now, uh, the engine spins at a constant RPM, and the way that it produces power is by increasing the bite of air or the pitch. So feathering the propeller is just changing the pitch of the propeller. 
And I was trying to get it so that it wouldn't suck him in or blow him backwards. It was perfectly up and down, biting no air. And I was watching my, my gauges and looking outside at like the little flag on, on the stand to make sure that it wasn't uh, blowing too hard. And so when I gave him the green light, that's my best friend about to go into a potential meat grinder. If I sneeze and I move that throttle, he's going backwards or he's getting sucked in. That you talk about trust, you know, that's that's yeah. a big trust. And uh, my best friend down there walking in, into that propeller, uh, that would have been a nightmare for me. So that's and that's the things I, I do. I did enjoy about the Navy as we trust each other and, and the people that you work with are, are like no other that you'll ever encounter. Well, with that, let's go into the final round. All right. Any save rounds or alibis? What are alibis? <laughs> Anything else that you have that we haven't spoken about? Anything? Oh, more? let's see. <laughs> I think, no, I think we covered it. I think we covered it all. Hmm. Yeah. Um, if anybody's interested in the safety field, um, look at online at bcsp.org, board, board of certified safety professionals.org. You can do online classes. You can uh, see what you qualify for. You can do an OSHA 300, I'm sorry, OSHA 30 hour. Uh, you can do construction, general industry, and you can learn more about this stuff uh, just by doing a little bit of research and investing some money in some courses. All right, now that we're in our save round and alibi round, let's uh, let's go in and uh, let's get these uh, final questions knocked out. Sure. What books or podcasts do you recommend trans? Man, I am a transitioning uh, service members. Yeah, I am a nerd. I like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, I like his books. The latest one called Starry Messenger. Uh, I saw a meme on Facebook not that long ago that talked about a, a UFO rolling up his windows when he drives by Earth. And, and Starry Messenger talks about uh, stepping back and taking a, a huge perspective of the planet Earth and how our differences that divide us actually mean nothing when you step back and look at the totality of Earth. If a stranger like a, a UFO, Martian, or extraterrestrial life form were to land on Earth, they would wonder why are these people starving and why are these people have so much? You know, why are these people hurting and why are these people living so well? Where's why the disparity? You know, and all the things that we kind of hold near and dear as as values uh, really mean nothing when you're talking about the uh, totality of human beings on earth so neil degrasse tyson is somebody that i follow anything that's a podcast i usually listen to it on the road when i'm driving to a client and back um and i i've also have an audiobook subscription uh i've listened to uh improvement books uh things about dieting which i've yet to implement you know healthy diets <laughs> but, but i know about some dieting I mean, hey, if dieting is eating pizza and donuts, count me in. I'm dieting. Right? Um, it's a form of a diet, right? I it mean, is. it really is. You know, hey, you know, my uh, cardiologist may not like it, but hey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all fun and games, you know, when we're young like we are now. But uh, 
we got to take care of ourselves. And so I'm, I'm changing gears and trying to get back in shape. Like when I was in active duty, um, audio, audio books. Um, I have a, a, a subscription to that. Um, just listen to just about any audio book that I can. But Neil deGrasse Tyson is one. Um, I'd like listening to uh, fair and balanced pol political commentators like uh, Chris Cuomo, who got fired from CNN. But when they fired him, they took the harness, the reins off. And he runs his mouth now and he kind of tells it like it is. So I, I like listening to people like that. If you can listen to somebody and they, you, you hear things that you agree with, and then they turn around and offend you because they said something that you don't agree with. That's probably somebody that you need to listen to. Uh, the truth that we hang on to, we will do just about anything to defend it, even if it's not real. You know, our 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 perceived truths, and that's what needs to be challenged. All right, Marty. So I got two questions for you. Yes, sir. What would you do? Um, if you could go back with the Klondike your... bar, <laughs> I'm retired. I'll eat it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you do with your younger self before you joined the military? If you could go back in time and what kind of advice would you tell them? I would have scored higher on that ASVAB for sure. Uh, it could have changed the course of my life. Uh, potentially there's so much that I pictured myself doing in the military uh, and, you know, Struggling to get into the military wasn't one of those things that I had in mind. So You're lucky they would have been like, hey, AZ is perfect for you. You've got the right ass, man. Congratulations. Hey, man, you, I would have welcomed you right in, man. Wow. I thought you needed more than a 38 to be an AZ. That looks pretty technical. No, you, Dude, that's you probably like a, 20, a 25. No, you need a 60-something. Unlike those AMEs. <laughs> You need a twice my score to be easy. <laughs> All right, second question that I got for you. What advice would you give yourself and when? Um, which I know you kind of covered it already, but what advice would you give yourself to prepare yourself for the transition, the reintegration? Um, I would just say relax, you know. Um, once it's it's like when uh, like when you get to the PRT. Um, you've already prepared or you didn't prepare. You know, what, ha what, what what's gonna happen is what you prepared for it to happen. Uh, when you get to, to the day that you're transitioning out, relax. And when, you, when, you, when the weeks are approaching and the days are approaching to your EOS, just relax, you know. Um, if something doesn't happen for you then, it'll happen for you soon. Um, if, if you, got your education, you worked on certifications, you polish your resume, uh, and, and you know, you got it out there and you have good experience that you can put on your resume. If you properly translated military to civilian experience, something will bite. Everything is done by computers these days. Our software goes through thousands of resumes in seconds and they're looking for keywords. And these are all things that you would learn in a resume writing class, so. Just relax, man. You don't need to go to a men's warehouse and spend a thousand dollars on suits. You know, you can go to Macy's and and get a two hundred dollars suit, and you'll be fine. Go to Goodwill, get yourself a uh, a twenty dollar uh, special. There you go. Business casual. 
you know, some collared shirts, some slacks, some decent shoes. You're good to go, man. So with that in mind, what, what kind of uh, mindset did you have while you were transitioning? How did you get yourself in that right transition mindset? Um, honestly, I was so amped up and worried and scared about what was coming. Uh, I mean, you got to remember, I, I had a house in Lemoore that was worth half the value of what I bought it for. So I had to make that mortgage payment and, and I had saved, but that savings might've carried me a year or something like that. And uh, I was apprehensive. I was looking for work and, uh, you know, but, but something happened when, when that three month time frame before I got out, I uploaded my resume into monster.com. And um, within a week of doing that, I started getting phone calls. You know, so the, the I, I don't remember that I ever actually had a, a certain mindset. I would like to seem cool and say, yeah, man, I prepared. I got, I had it under control. Mm -mm, not this guy. I don't know how to relax, man. It, when I know that there's something that has to be done, especially where my livelihood and my family is involved, that's afterburner for me. I'm going to give it everything I got to make it happen. You know, that sounds like a mindset to me, man. You, you had a mindset of there was something that needed to be done and you went out there and did it. You took care of your, uh, your stuff. You worked it, you worked it, you worked it. And it, it, it the job didn't just happen. No. The job was there because of all the stuff that you did and your timing happened to be impeccable. So that, that is, that is it, you know? Time plus preparation equals success. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's great. That's great, man. So for our Mill to Vet Return to Roots audience, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, you are welcome to call me or email me. My email is mvasquez, V as in Victor, A-S-Q-U-E-Z, at kpaonline.com. Or you can call me. I still have my Lamore phone number. It's 559-381-8712. I would love to talk to any veteran. I would love to be a personal reference for you. Um, you know, if you're going to apply for my company, um, even if you don't have a college degree, a lot of the times if you have any kind of experience, I can sometimes help people bridge that gap and, and get you in front of a manager and get you an interview at the very least mark we want to thank you for coming on to the show we want to thank you for your time for your mentorship and your guidance um i know chris and i are going to be reaching out to you we've been talking a lot of uh very eloquent words <laughs> yeah that's one way to put it <laughs> <laughs> but no seriously man thank you so much thank you for sharing your knowledge and thank you, thank you for being here for our audience so that they can, we can help them grow and be part of the change that we want to see in the world, man. Like, awesome, man. Well, thank you too for what you do. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Hey, thank you so much, man. Again, 
return to roots Mildevet family you guys just heard a very successful transition story they're not all like that and here's the thing it's not all rainbows and unicorns out there and it's your transition take charge of it return to roots out